Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love of Life podcast. We have joining us tonight, the one and only Paul McCusker, coming up next. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. All right, and we're back. Paul is with us. Paul is best known for his work on the long-running children's audio program, Adventures in Odyssey, and award-winning radio theater productions for the Augustan Institute and Focus on the Family. His published works include The Adventures of Nick and Sam, First Reader Series, The Virtue Chronicles, The Imagination Station Book Series, The Passages Series, adult mysteries and thrillers, biographies, plays and musicals, and just so much more. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, P.G. Woodhouse, he once said, I started writing at the age of five. Before that, I was probably just loafing. How old were you, Paul, when you started writing? Well, it was at the point when I could actually start writing, when I could hold something in my hand and actually write. I may have scribbled and done some drawings before then, you know, like (laughs) little kids do. But pretty much at the point when I began to understand words and how to write them down is when I started. So I, it was probably about five, and it's true. I think I was just loafing before that. <laughs> <laughs> did you know then that you wanted to be a full-time writer, like in your career, or did that develop later? Well, it had to come later because I think, you know, when you're five and you're in elementary school and even up into junior high and everything, the idea of being a writer is a very vague well the idea of any career you know when you're little you're not even thinking of anything except what i want to be when i grow up but you know that's usually something really sensational i don't know that i remember the well when i grow up i want to be a writer because that seemed bizarre somehow being an astronaut or a fireman or (laughs) all those seemed attainable but it almost seems silly to say well when i grow up i want to be a writer Because, I mean, I didn't know, there was no one in my life, I guess if I came from a family of writers, then it might make sense to me to think, oh, you can actually make a living doing this. (laughs) But, you know, who at five is thinking about making a living at all? Except, you know, but really it was much later, um, probably when I was in college, that it it seemed attainable. It seemed like something I could actually do. Not just wishful thinking, but as something that I might want to uh, direct myself to as a as a career of some sort. Yeah. How did you How did you then go from writing and getting How did you get into radio theater, radio drama? How did that come about? Well, that the the short version is that I, I think it it started because I I was writing uh, dramas stage dramas for my church. I, I I went to a very arts-minded church. So I had an outlet for uh, creating short sketches, one-act plays, then full-length plays. And through that, I became connected to Chuck Bolte and a group called the Jeremiah People, which was a subset of the, of the Continental Ministries out of uh, California. And the Jeremiah People would come to my church like every year through the 70s. I, I think there were just multiple years in a row where they would come in and 
that was an influence on me because they were funny. They, they, they were moving. They, they, they were just, you know, as I was getting older, I found a lot of what I saw that was called Christian was fairly embarrassing. And these guys were not. And the writing and the way they approached what they did, to me, had the right level of uh, just all the right combination of things. So it's it's interesting because it's it's a handoff thing. So they come to my church. They kind of inspire me in the sense of of writing or what I could write. Because originally I thought, well, I want to be a novelist. But at our church, I had the opportunity to do sketches. Well, if I'm going to write sketches, I want to write sketches kind of like they were doing. And so that influenced me. Well, then as I started writing, Chuck and I became friends. He And anybody who knows Odyssey knows that Chuck Bolte for the first um, several years of Odyssey was the was the executive producer. Well, that's the connection. So I wound up moving from Maryland to California, working with Chuck at the Continental uh, offices, writing for Jeremiah people. And then Chuck was consulting with Focus on the Family, which I'd never heard of. <laughs> Focus on the Family. And uh, they started to do these audio dramas. And so he came back one day and said, look, they need writers. Do you have any interest in writing audio dramas? And I think my first question really was, well, do they actually pay anything? <laughs> and the answer was, well, no, they actually do. This is a good organization. They'll pay. And I went, well, I'm game. You know, I'll give it a try. And I had dabbled with, you know, I played, I had this little reel-to-reel recorder. That just shows how old I am. It was a <laughs> reel-to-reel. And I used to actually create little uh, radio dramas, little audio dramas on it with sound effects. And, and I mean, they were just ridiculous. But <laughs> I love to play with sound. But again, you never think, well, I can somehow take this and turn it into something, you know, that would actually be a career. So uh, it was through Chuck that I got connected to Focus. And then the program, it was Family Portraits that later became, well, Odyssey USA, which then became Adventures in Odyssey. And I was writing for them as a freelancer on the on the Family Portraits series. I did one episode and then they asked me to come on board full time to work with them. And uh, and then that's kind of where that uh, I said yes. And then. I've been doing that for now for the vast majority of my adult life, <laughs> such as it is. When you began that, did you have any idea that Odyssey would be such a big hit? Or was it kind of this just new experiment? More of an experiment. I think uh, Phil Lawler and I and the gang in the beginning, I, you know, you can never predict or you never think, well, this will last, you know, for X number of years. You're just thinking, you know, we'll, we'll, we're doing our job now and we're going to do the best that we can. And there was an excitement of the experimentation because we knew we weren't going to do it like old time radio drama. Uh, we we instinctively felt it needed to be something more dynamic. And in fact, it was kind of a clean slate for us. Uh, I mean, we knew the old radio dramas and the influences those could have on us, but we were also part of the MTV generation, which was very visual. And I think we instinctively began to think in terms of, well, we're going to do it, but you know, we're going to do it as we do it, which will turn out to be different somehow. And so that that really was, so I, I think you pegged it with the word experimental. I, I don't know that we were thinking it was going to be a hit because 
how, how do you have a hit with an audio drama anyway? <laughs> I mean, at the time, people said we were crazy for doing it because it was the MTV generation. And it was like, well, okay, good luck, but you're not really going to get much of an audience because who <laughs> listens to audio dramas now? Nobody. So when we started it, I, I don't know that, again, much like when I was five, I wasn't thinking of longevity. I wasn't thinking of anything beyond doing the immediate thing. And I, I don't think the rest of the team, I think we all just felt, well, we were doing something we thought was good and mm -hmm. worth doing. And we were doing it to the best we could, but ultimately you were sort of sending it out there and wondering, well, will anyone hear it? And if they hear it, will they like it? And to what degree will they like it? I, I mean, we we just couldn't have known, not really. I don't think we had a magic moment where we all suddenly went, oh, this is going to be huge. <laughs> uh, if, if anybody had that, I, it wasn't me. When did that moment finally hit, though, where you realized, oh, kids around the world are listening to Adventures in Odyssey? Was it in the 80s well, or was it the early 90s that that actually took real shape? Probably more into the 90s, because in the first few years, you know, we, we're getting it out there. And the means by which people could get in touch with us, you know, in many ways was limited. So we'd have letters coming in and people would be asking us questions. And that became an indicator that at least people were listening or paying attention and then asking us questions or people were writing to Chris, you know, because she would say at the end of the show, have you ever had this experience and write and tell me about it. <laughs> so the number of letters coming in as, as those increased and as we began to hear stories of listeners, why a particular show meant a lot to them or or to the negative, how they might react to a show that they they disagreed with or didn't like, told us that the, the listenership was growing. And so that, that helped. And then in the 90s, we just began to see this escalation. And the escalation became more obvious. And we thought, oh, well, something's happening here. Was there any particular <laughs> feedback that really stuck out to you from a listener? Anything that's maybe stayed with you? Well, the testimonials did. Um, when, when we do a, a show like Karen, mm -hmm. which was about a girl that died of cancer, and we began to hear from people who who told us how much that show meant to them because somebody they loved had died of cancer, or even girls who had cancer were writing to us. Um, when we were getting those kinds of letters, or one of the famous ones that we often talk about is there was a listener who wrote to us and said, basically, he's so connected with Eugene <laughs> that I think he wrote and said, basically, I'm not a Christian, but if Eugene ever becomes a Christian, then I, I might do that. Wow. Well, after after Eugene became a Christian, we got letters, not and from this person, but from other people who, and one in particular, who said he was listening, he was uh, driving like he's on a major interstate or something he was driving eugene in the episode the time has come where eugene becomes a christian he was so moved by it that he pulled over and he wrote to us later he said i pulled over and i i prayed to accept jesus into my heart um and then I called focus on the family to ask them if i had done it properly <laughs> so 
So when we when we started getting letters and we started hearing from people, we began to talk about Odyssey at that level, not just as entertainment, but as something that was touching them more deeply. Um, that became very meaningful for us. That's very humbling, and 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 certainly meaningful, and the right kind of, um, you know, the, the, well, the right kind of affirmation. You know, not ego strokes, but just affirmation that, well, we're doing the right thing. You know, we continue to do our best. And if it's speaking to them, then that's wonderful. And now that we're in, you know, a second, third generation Mm -hmm. and you're talking to people your age, who says (laughs) they grew up with Odyssey and now they've got kids and then you've got other grandkids who are listening. And then I'm hearing from artists people who are producers, people who are actually uh, in in filmmaking and things like that saying, well, the reason I want to do what I'm doing is because you guys did what you did. Yeah. And that hit me at a whole other level when I thought, <laughs> oh, so we're, the show is inspiring people to actually do what we do, but hopefully doing it better mm. and in other fields. And that that part of it was incredibly gratifying, I think, for all of us, too. Yeah. To think that it it might be sort of reproducing itself, seeds are planted, and then it's now giving a different kind of harvest than we probably even expected. Yeah. What would you say are some of the key components of creating high quality Christian content? How do you not make it too corny or too cheesy? Obviously, there's some things in Odyssey that are corny, but it works. And it's good. Well, yeah, and it's and if it's corny, it's intentional. See, and I think that's sure. a big part of it. That, yeah. If you're doing it, you know you're doing it. It's not by accident. But honestly, um, I take Christian out of that question because to a great degree, what what makes for a good story is what you're really dealing with. If it, oh, And whatever the art is, whether you're painting or sculpting or whatever, composing a song – the main thing is not necessarily to be agenda driven, but to bring to bear the discipline of good craft, what you're doing, whether it's telling stories or writing songs or whatever, do it and do it well. And to do it well doesn't mean the end result of the impact, meaning because because I think when I was growing up, a lot of times the the the, the litmus test for effectiveness not was not was it good? Was it well-made? Was it good in that respect? Not morally good, but in the sense of craft. It was, well, did they come to Jesus or not? Did they? So it was often measured by the end result Mm. and the impact it would have spiritually, which the best stories and the best art forms, you took me a long time to realize in many ways you can't measure by that. In fact, it's a misnomer to try to measure by that because art, by virtue of what it is, operates in a different way. And so what I learned over the years was, you know, you have um, the rightful place of proclamation where, and Jesus did this and pastors do it, people do it. They proclaim the truth in in that way that is that leaves little room for anything other than I'm receiving what you're saying and I either accept it or reject it, whatever the case may be. But with art, I think art is more exploration. 
the best art is an exploration. And by that, that doesn't mean you don't know where you're going. In fact, just the opposite. You know where you're going, but what you're doing is inviting people to come with you. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, we're, we're going to explore some ideas together, whether it's a painting and you're looking at, you know, Rembrandt's prodigal son and going, what did he do there? And look, look, why did he make those choices? And Rembrandt saying, I'm going to show you something or Michelangelo or a, a great song or a great story is basically, uh, uh, you know, let me let me kind of put this out there and let's explore it together. And see what conclusions we come to. And again, it doesn't mean that as a writer I don't know what I'm trying to do and I don't know what my themes are or if there are messages, what those might be. But the craft of of telling a good story and then letting those themes work themselves out in a credible way is very different from a proclamation where you're then inviting people to come forward, you know, a Billy Graham moment of bringing people forward or something like that. So I, I, that's not, it's a long-winded answer, but Mm-hmm. I hope I got to what you were asking. That's good. Which is that I think, and I honestly think that with Odyssey, if there's a secret sauce, I think the truth of the secret sauce is we worked hard not to be overt in our messages, even though we could be. But if we were going to be, hopefully we did it in an entertaining way. Mm-hmm. And I think the other secret with Odyssey is. It is a place you really do want to be mm-hmm. with people you like hanging out with. And I think that makes a huge, huge difference. So you know they're going to have conflicts. You know that things are going to happen. But you care about these characters and you care about what happens to them. And so really you just like being there with them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it took me a long, long time to realize that was a big part of it. Yeah. Um was and I think that's if if you think about most of the most of the series that you really like, that's probably a big part of it. Mm-hmm. It's not just the excitement or the cliffhanger or whatever. You really do have to like the the main characters and like who they are and care about what happens to them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a place we've never really left. I, you know, I, since yeah. I was a child, I've never, I mean, there are people that I've, that say they've kind of grown up and grown out of it, but frankly, we've introduced our kids to it. My parents still yeah. will listen to it. They'll, you know, ask about it and we'll talk about Odyssey. And so it's definitely one of those things that we have continued on and we don't want to leave it. Kind of reminds me of uh, Lewis when he writes to Lucy. Barfield at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he says, someday you'll be old enough for fairy tales again. It's like, you know, yes, it, yes. you don't really ever have to grow out of the good fairy tales or the good stories. Adventures in Odyssey is yeah. definitely one of those. Do you? Yeah, have- and it's funny because we would, we would talk to kids who, it's like they'd hit 12, 13, or 14, and they would kind of, oh, that's little kids stuff, and they would sort of outgrow it. But then we saw, we and you do something long enough and you see these sorts of things. <laughs> then we saw them change. We saw it. They'd come back at 18, <laughs> 19, 20. Sometimes when they were in college, because they'd go off to college and they would want to, um, they kind of want a piece of home. Yeah. We heard from people overseas in the military in Afghanistan or, or you know, in, in all these foreign countries taking Odyssey with them. Not only because they loved it, because it reminded them home. It was like taking home with them. And the same thing, we we heard, I, I remember a story of one guy who 
wound up going to a college, a fairly, I mean, staunchly secular college. And he's a Christian and thinking, how in the world am I going to meet anybody? <laughs> so he had this idea and he thought, it's like a secret handshake. <laughs> he said, I'm going to have a pizza night in our common area and invite people to come listen to Adventures in Odyssey. So he put up these notices and all he said was, Pizza Night with Adventures in Odyssey without explaining what it was, because he thought <laughs> if they know what it is, I don't have to explain it. And maybe, maybe I'll actually get to meet a couple of people <laughs> who who could be my friends now that I'm at this new school. And he had dozens of people show up. <laughs> he had to order all this pizza and they filled out the room. And he said, <laughs> I just had all these people and I became friends with them. And I thought I'd Never thought of that as a good way to meet people is do an Odyssey club with some pizza and then you can meet people. But it really is almost like that secret handshake. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of that mention Odyssey. And if either they know what you're talking about or they don't. That's right. Yes. You're in good company if you're with somebody who also enjoys Odyssey. Do you have a yeah, personal? I, well, I would hope so. <laughs> right. You are. Do you have a personal favorite no. character? Well, I had, I mean, I have great affection for most of the characters, which sounds like a cop-out, but I do mm -hmm. like them for different reasons and at diff in different ways, depending on, especially as a, if I'm writing for them and you see what they're getting into and these especially poignant moments when you see some of the characters kind of get into things that are heart-wrenching, you know, or learning curves for them in terms of their journeys and um so honestly i i i don't uh they all had you know different i had different affection for them uh, i mean and especially working on a show for a long time and and then of course working with these amazing actors uh i honestly don't know that i could uh, some were more favorite than others at times depending <laughs> on what we were doing um you know, so it, yeah, it kind of, there was an ebb and flow to it. So I, yeah, I don't mean to give you a cop out on that. It's just, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I can pick, pick one character as a favorite. Um, except I will admit that some characters can be more fun to write for mm. than others. <clears throat> others, I mean, are great to write for because they're good characters, but there were some that you just sort of like. I don't know, something about it when you're sitting down and you're working on the script, their lines just sort of come in from somewhere. Uh, Wooten was always like that. <laughs> uh, Harlow Doyle was a bit like that. I loved to write for Eugene, in, especially in certain contexts. Uh, Eugene and Connie, especially when they were playing off of each other, yeah. you know, where you just sort of get this chemistry, this dynamic that was fun to write for. And, and so... Yeah, it always varied in that respect. When you wrote for Eugene, did you have to pick up Webster's 1828 dictionary to like pull out the words for Eugene? You Actually, a lot of times we did. I mean, and you think <laughs> when the show started, it was pre-internet. So, I mean, to do the research for him to know what he knew. Right. Because I'm the first. I, I, I'm, I've always said I am not as smart as Eugene. I'm not as wise as wit. Mm -hmm. And that being the case, I just, um, yeah, you kind of have to go to a lot of source material <laughs> to yeah. figure it all out. 
<laughs> no doubt. No doubt. They say every writer is also a reader. So what are your personal reading habits and what are your writing habits? Well, my writing, I actually, I wish I could read as much as I've been writing these days. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a very good question. No, I, I'm, I'm still an avid reader. I don't know that I'm reading as much now as I used to. Um, but I will read. I, I think what happened is over the years, I began to read more and more related to what I was working on. So I might have certain things that I'm working on or, or not working on, but I'm reading just for enjoyment or because I'm I'm fascinated by how this story storyteller is telling this story or fiction or a lot of nonfiction. I mean, I'm surrounded by books that are a lot of them are historical books because when I'm writing about certain periods, uh, I really want to dig in deep to what those what was going on the context. Um, so and then I pull out you know classics. Right now I'm looking at uh, just off here to my left, and I've got Dune because mm. I'd never read Dune. Yeah, and I did see the movie that they did and thought, oh well, I'd like to you know maybe it's time for me to go back. Because I'm not a big sci-fi person, and I'm not even big in fantasy. I mean, my wife had to kind of twist my arm. She pretty much said I couldn't watch the movies, the Lord <laughs> of the Rings movies, yeah. uh, unless I read the books first. Oh. So, and I was glad she did that. Yeah. So I read the books, saw the movies. You know, like read one, the movie came out. Read the other one, the next movie came out. So this was you know 20 years ago. Right. And uh, so yeah, my reading is all over the place. But I think it's true. I think there's a great, I, I think you need to read to see what people do with words, not only just for taking in information, but to find inspiration. Mm -hmm. But then again, you do that through other audio dramas. You can do it through our own audio drama. Sometimes I listen to the work of the other writers and other people who I find inspiring, you know, because they come up with great stuff, uh, but certainly movies and a lot of TV programs. Even if I don't agree with them, I can find them inspiring. You know, I've got some I've got some writers who um I like how they tell stories, but I don't necessarily like the stories that they're telling. <laughs> if that sure. makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, uh, but yeah, I think reading is a good a big part of input. Let's just say input is a big part of writing. Because there is a point where the well can run dry. There's a point when you want the waters to stir. You need them to stir. You need the inspiration. And sometimes you don't even know that you're reading something that's going to inspire you on a project three years from now, which happens to me a lot. Um, I'll take something in and then not related to anything I'm doing. And then a year later, two years later, I'm working on something and remember it. Oh, that's amazing. So you've already kind of alluded to some things, but are there any, besides taking in good content and working on craft, are there any other disciplines that you can pinpoint that have really uh, been a part of giving you such a long and successful career? Well, I think just doing it has probably been <laughs> it. It's just staying, staying with it. I mean, I, I really am the last person in the world to give people career advice because <laughs> I can't account for my career. All I did was follow up opportunities that things kind of came up and you say yes to things, you say no to things, and you hopefully develop an instinct to know 
which is going to lead to something that hopefully would be good. And by good, I mean, I've taken writing projects strictly for the experience of doing it. Oh, I haven't done that. I'll do that. I'd like to, I'd like to see how I do with that, you know, just to try it. Um, So in terms of my overall career, it's, it's a combination of, you know, God-given opportunities that I I took on um, doing my best, doing the very best that I could treating all projects in a sense as my own to apply myself to them as bringing the best to bear of discipline of craft of of intuition hopefully and uh and and going from there really um but anybody who talks about writing that isn't writing that I'm very skeptical that they want to be writers <laughs> you know if the first thing is well if you want to be a writer then write and keep writing keep writing until it becomes obvious to you that you really don't want to be a writer <laughs> you know whatever the case may be but doing it i mean it sounds like a cliche but doing it is the main thing i think sure sure someone once said the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind the only thing that can do that is a good story why is story so compelling to us you kind of hit on that a few minutes ago but what is the essence of story as just human beings christian or non just well you you, actually you just answered the question it's human beings um because Ideas are objective to a great degree, even if they're subjectively given, they're objective. And you can accept or reject. Again, we're back to proclamation. You know, you can say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And immediately somebody's thinking, do I believe in God? What do you mean by his son? What do you mean gave? You know, they're immediately dissecting. They're immediately sort of taking your proposition and determining whether it's true or not. And to a great degree, then that's disembodied. A philosophical point of view um, is disembodied from humanity. So in a way, we can detach from it, and then we can decide, well, does it appeal to me? Does it make sense? Do I agree with this? If I do, why? If I don't, why don't I? But there's, there's this detachment that happens, whereas storytelling, like the best art forms, um, humanizes everything. If you're telling a good story, even if it's Winnie the Pooh, (laughs) even if it's about a robot, everything at essence, the greatest stories are about humanity. Humanity has played out even through non-human beings, but the essence of those stories is all about our humanity. And our humanity attached to how we interact with each other, what we think of ourselves, what do we think of life, what do the characters think of things, and then ultimately, a story as part of a bigger story, if you're going to explore that, you know, you, it's undeniable that when you're reading, you know, Frodo and the gang and their adventures in Lord of the Rings, that you're reading about something bigger. And that you see how their story is part of a much bigger story. All those characters are part of a much bigger story than just their moment in it. And I think that's also what story does. It, it nudges us in the direction of, of bigger truths, of bigger things, even when we're not consciously arguing about them. You know, you can argue with a proclamation, but when you're dealing with a character who's making choices true to the character and you don't agree with those choices or you do agree, you're rolling with it and 
you're sort of disarmed from that dispassionate right, wrong, good, bad, you're, you're, you're in terms of do I agree with the decisions or not? So if you're listening to Odyssey and, and you know, whatever Witt is doing or Eugene or Wooten or Connie or whoever it is, you're kind of engaged and you're rolling along with what those characters are doing. You may dissect later, do I agree, don't agree, why did I, didn't I, you know, whatever that may be. But that's a later process. When you're in the story, when you're in the story, you're living the story, and mm-hmm. then that's the disarming thing. I think when it comes to why story can be or art can be more effective, you listen to a song. I mean, there's songs that I love that I don't agree with at all, from point of view or morality, but they're really good songs, mm-hmm. and they might move me. They might make me feel things I wouldn't otherwise feel in a way that if somebody took that exact same thing and wrote it as an essay, <laughs> I'm not necessarily going to respond to it, you know, in that way or if at all. Sure. Well, speaking of good stories, will there be any more Father Gilbert's or anything like it? Father Gilbert. Yes. We'll see. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's, that's a funny question. Cause I get, I may get that question more than almost any other that I get. They were wow. so and good. So the short, well, the short, the short answer is I would love to do more Father Gilbert's. It's just a question of money and time, somebody putting up the money to do them, you know, to create them. And then me with my overcommitment that I'm I'm always guilty of, I'm, I'm always <laughs> in trouble of overcommitting, is to go back into that world and actually then have the time to create the next yeah. stories. I think I still have a lot of notes for where I intended to go. And, uh, and I think you know that after we finish the nine, so it kind of has a, a, a gentle punctuation mark, a semicolon rather than a full stop. Um, so I took him to a certain point and then I did two novels. So there are two novels that follow exactly where the series left off. And so it kind of nudged it forward, but I didn't go too far because I kept thinking, well, at some point I I may be able to pick this up as an audio drama. And what, what do I do with this then if the opportunity comes up? So I miss father gilbert honestly i miss writing yeah i miss i miss writing for father gilbert and mrs mayhew and those kinds of stories yeah they're wonderful and they're just a great example of really mature content and interesting themes and being done in such a great way and not in a graphic way or over not overdone even with some of the material and the things that you handle, like we can listen to it even mm-hmm. with our kids. It's mature enough, but it's not, um, doesn't cross a line. So uh, yeah, we, we just- Well, I hope not. It's And it's funny. I think that's probably the Odyssey influence because even the stuff I write now, as I'm getting into, I mean, you know, tough areas or if I'm writing about something, my Odyssey instincts kick in and and they really do kick in not to- turn something into, you know, saccharine or or to homogenize it, but to figure out how can I do this so that it still has the right dramatic impact, but doesn't traumatize Mm -hmm. or doesn't unduly shock. Because as a writer, I've always said that the problem with 
you know, the, the shock is, is that people remember the shock, but they don't remember the value of whatever it is you were doing, you know? And so I, I think Odyssey helped me a lot with that, uh, with Father Gilbert and other things I've done since, which is, is just trying to find the right balance, not to be gratuitous, not to go too far. Now, I mean, parents always have to decide and all kids have different sensibilities and you, as good parents, you would know, well, you know, she may be able to listen to this, but you know what, (laughs) this may be too troubling for him. And so you make those choices. Um, And we used to put disclaimers about ages and stuff just to protect so that if parents didn't listen first, um, we didn't want to get in trouble when the kids are, you know, <laughs> the parents are going, you were listening to what? Yeah. Like, what? Right. What happened? Yeah, those so, were the, those were my favorite episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, I, we used to hear from kids. It's like as soon as as soon as uh, Chris would come on and say, you know, um, get your parents to listen to this first. Yeah. The kids. We knew the listeners were immediately going. Well, maybe I'll go get my parents. Maybe I'll just listen first to right. find out what it is they may not want me to hear. But sure. that that was always that always meant yeah, it meant something juicy was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, those were always my favorite. Um, speaking of uh, speaking of parenting, what were bedtime stories like at your house growing up? I know you, I believe your bio says you you have two kids. I assume they're grown. Yeah, they're grown it, up you now. know it's funny. Yeah, well, I know. Yeah, my my no grandkids as such, but um, no. When my kids were growing up, we used to read. Um, well, we had all kinds of books. I mean, everything from early on Good Night Moon mm-hmm. to other. I mean, at some point, I remember reading to my son The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always had these sort of. We always had these books, and some were favorites, so we read them like every night. And then I I would make up stories. And I remember I started with my son, who was older. I mean, he's two years older than my daughter, but, you know, and, and I personalize it. So it'd be um, once upon a time, there was a boy named Tommy. That's my son. And he had a dog named, I think it was Sparkle or something. And so I would make up stories pretty much on the spot. And then I did that with my daughter. Though she was funny. She, her name's Ellie. And she she's 21 now, but she was funny because... I just remember vividly, I would start to tell her, I'd start to read a story and she'd put her hands on the book or she'd close the book and she'd go, no, no, daddy, tell me a story with your own mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I know what you mean. You know, you want me to make it up. But then what she would do is I'd say, well, once upon a time, there was a girl named Ellie. And one day, and I think she had a cat. I'm trying to remember the name of the cat. I'd have to ask her, but I'd say, and one day Ellie decided to go to the park and then Ellie would say, Oh no, daddy. No, 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 no. She went to the playground. (laughs) So she correct my story and they go, okay, she went to the playground and then she walked over and every plot point, she would stop me and go, Oh no, not there, there. (laughs) And she began. So she didn't realize when she was two years old or whatever, but she was making up stories with my stories, but she was editing me <laughs> as I went along, which she still does, by the way, but in a different way. <laughs> so, you know, we loved, um, I actually loved the the bedtime experience and I enjoyed making up the stories. Um, 
but I also enjoyed reading them. And and then with the Goodnight Moon, we used to, <laughs> we got to a point where you know these books so well that I actually started reading them backwards. Mm. <laughs> I did them completely in reverse, word for word backwards. And and I would do that occasionally just to break things up a bit. But um, uh, yeah, that that was a big because I don't remember when I was growing up having stories read to me. Mm. Um, I, we had some books and I remember, you know, when I could read, reading, you know, little books, Dr. Seuss or certain things like that. But um, but no, that wasn't part of my upbringing, but we certainly wanted it to be part of my kids. Sure. And they did listen to Odyssey for quite a bit. It was in the car. Yeah. For them. There, there wasn't any evening where they're like, Dad, don't tell us a bedtime story. We'd rather listen to Wit tonight. Do they ever try to? You know, they listen? actually, you know, it's it's funny. For my family and for my kids in particular, Odyssey was in the car. Wow. It wasn't. Wow. Yeah. When we were in the house, I don't remember, except maybe special occasions like, you know, it's Christmas and we're decorating and we would put on one of the Odyssey Christmas episodes. Sure. But. Um, no, it was a car thing for them, not inside the house. Interesting. Interesting. Um, but you know, and I will say this, all parents know this. It's a very uh, poignant thing to admit. And that is um, the observation that you never know when you've come to the last of something. Mm. Kids, kids do not announce. And suddenly you, you don't even know the date. You don't know when it happened but you're not reading stories to them anymore. Yeah. Bedtime has changed. It's a completely different thing. Who am I looking at? This is <laughs> Eden. Oh God, who is that? Who is it? Hold up. Ethan? Eden. Eden. Oh, Eden. Oh, sweet. Hey, Eden. <laughs> hey, baby. Hi. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know what this is. What in the world's going on? Yeah. Who were some of your main or who are some of your main influences either growing up or, or now presently? Um, well, you know, I have to think about that. I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis still remains kind of ever present. Um, in fact, I was just reading about him earlier and I'm teaching a course right now about the screw tape letters. It's an online mm. thing. And I was, um, going back through some of that and, um, so there are people like Lewis, Tolkien, like I said, I'm reading Dune. I'm trying to go back to classics. Um, Tolstoy, this is really strange. I am late in life on Tolstoy. <laughs> you could not have had me read him at any other point in my life, but over the last few years. And I like him better than Dostoevsky. I wow. mean, everybody kept pointing me to Dostoevsky, sure. Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. And uh, this is terrible to admit, but I got a hundred pages into that. And I remember thinking, if I have to listen to one more diatribe from this drunken Russian, I'm going to, I'm going to throw the book across the room because of the way it was written. And it just kind of kept going on and on. But Tolstoy, a friend of mine just said, Oh no, no you've got to read Anna Karenina, you know? Mm, yeah. And, and so I started reading it and, I was immediately drawn in to Tolstoy's writing and his characterization and his insights, mm -hmm. you know, just these throwaway lines that he would do of humanity and realized, okay, I like Tolstoy better than Dostoevsky, though I wouldn't forego Dostoevsky. I think he's incredible. Dickens the same, you know, when I read Dickens, Mark Twain was a big influence on me. Um, so in terms of 
a lot of the books and some of those classics. But honestly, and this you won't be surprised because you like Father Gilbert, but in the early days, uh, Stephen King, mm-hmm. sure. uh, some of some of those writers, uh, Dean Koontz, a few of those, yeah. Um, and um, though actually now I appreciate Dean Koontz because he actually tends to explore um, morality. In uh, there are moral things that he explores, I think, at a deeper level than Stephen King does. Sure. Um, But I'm saying that without having read a Stephen King book in a very long time. Sure. So that may have changed. Um, King is great. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of all over the place, really. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, I just have to bring up that it's really wonderful talking to you, but it is a little disconcerting. To be hearing the what? voice of Philip Glossman. Oh um, gosh! Yeah. <laughs> was that a plan? Did you know you were going to be a pivotal character? Were you excited to play well, that? See, my version of the story. Then, by the way, and I, I now realize late in life to be able to say this to people that if you ever are asked to play a bad guy, come <laughs> up with a different voice. Mm. <laughs> come up, don't. This, this is the is, only is, voice I have. <laughs> This yeah. is the only voice I have. <laughs> and if I if I'd really thought about it, I think um if I'd realized what was happening, I think I would have either not done it at all um or <laughs> would have done something different because basically it's my voice with a particular attitude. Yeah. And so I I actually they asked me to go in cuz I I'm I'm only a stone's throw from focus on the family. And uh, I, I actually got a message from one of the guys saying, now, look, we know you're going to say no, but will you say yes anyway? Could you come in and do a few Glossman lines? So um, I, I said, yeah, OK. You know, and they sent me the scripts and I went in to record them. But it actually was interesting because I walked through the door thinking, well, this can't be too hard. It's my voice. But when I sat down, I realized there is a particular attitude that changes my voice. So it's my voice, but to really be him, mm-hmm. I, I had to kind of find that attitude again and then deliver the lines. But um, so there are two versions of the story uh, very quickly. One of the versions is my side, which is my memory was we, I, I got pulled into the studio because we were in Pomona at the time and we had our own studio there and if you listen to some of the early episodes, you actually can tell where we pulled people in like a secretary, somebody from somewhere in the building and said, look, we just want you to do this voice. And you really can tell the difference between the professionals <laughs> and the not professionals. Sure. So I, I remember there were occasions when I would get pulled in just to fill in on, on something and play little parts. And I wasn't comfortable doing it, but because I'm not an actor. I never perceived myself as an actor, but you know, it's like, well, we'll do it for the team. You know, I'll go in. <laughs> and so Phil had written Glossman. So from my understanding, I was filling in for Glossman until we got somebody else to record the lines. Cause, and normally we do what we call wild it so that we just make sure that when I'm in with the other actors, they don't, overlap with my line so that you could replace me and that was my my memory faulty as it is was that that's what we were doing and then the next thing was 
Oh, no, no, we think you're good. We, we're going to leave, but we're not going to replace your lines. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, well, that's okay. This will be a one-off. We're not going to ever see this guy again. So, you know, one-off episode, there's my claim to fame. Well, you know, and then he shows up and he kept started to show up. And <laughs> so only recently, Phil, Phil and I were doing one of these. And Phil actually admitted that the real story from his point of view was that in his mind, I was always going to play Glossman. <laughs> and the way he put it, and I, it, this doesn't, uh, you know, I just want to say this um, gently for the sake of my own ego, but Phil said <laughs> that there were times in the office when I could have a certain attitude, <laughs> you know, just get a bit glib, a little sarcastic, a little something and what he wanted was a character with that attitude. And so he said, and again, I only got this recently, was that it was always his intention that I was going to play this character. <laughs> so we got a collision of two different perspectives. But either way, then I wound up with it. And then I've got this. I'm stuck with my voice <laughs> with people going, I, I can be in a situation and suddenly you almost see heads kind of going up if I'm yeah. talking somewhere. And then yeah. you can see the kids are like, they something's not right here. Yeah, you know the room temperature has changed because Glossman has somehow come into the room. Right. And I actually had I had one kid who who just looked at me one day and said, "Are you Philip Glossman?" And I said, "Well, no, I play Philip Glossman. I'm not Philip Glossman. I play it." And he just looked at me and he said, "I don't like you." And he turned around and walked away. You know, and I thought this is my life. This is my legacy now. Yeah, so. edge biter chemical spills on Tom Tom Riley's farm. That's right. Well, exactly the, the dynamics though between you and and Regis Blaggard with the voices and everything meshing, it worked just so well. Yeah. Though it worked really well. Well, and well, and that's easy when you're playing off of somebody like Earl Bowen. Yeah, you know, he made it easy to quiver in my boots because he was so intimidating you know for me to sit across from him doing lines with him sure uh, it was easy for me to be sniveling because yeah. he he was that that powerful so uh that that was okay odyssey <laughs> had a lot of bad guys i i really we, we love the novacom series and everything but i do think regis blaggard i think that that character plays probably the best nemesis uh out of oh out yeah of, out of all yeah oh no without question and, and the thing that phil was after was just that a nemesis yeah um i mean it, it's funny because of blackard our view was well he has to be the anti-wit hmm. and you know and and how we played that out as he and i were writing it but i mean it was originally i mean phil was definitely it was his idea and he he just you know he had it this is the anti-wit and so we're going to play that out so when you embody that in a character and then a character as well written and well played as as Blackard was, it just all came together as a great villain. Um, when we got to Novacom, uh, I was determined that we couldn't do Blackard again. Yeah. You know, it's like, OK, we can't do a rerun of Blackard. We're not going to do. And, and, you know, we created other nemesis, nemesis, nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> um for you see if eugene were here he would know he would know but but we we knew that um i didn't want to rerun anything 
I mean, we never really liked to. And so when we got to Novacom, we said, okay, what if the bad guy is an entity? Mm. What if the bad guy is not necessarily an individual, but a consortium of people who are trying to do what they're trying to do? And so it was purposeful not to kind of create another bad guy in that respect. Sure. Um, in fact, we never really went back, even when I did the Green Ring Conspiracy. And as we've written other you know, plot lines like that, uh, the going back to Blackard, you just, you know, when you get it right or that right, you just don't want to taint it by doing a bad job later with someone that everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, they're just, you know, they're, he's just trying to be Blackard. Sure. You know, you just sure. want to do that. You want to come up with something fresh and new and different. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a total aside, we needed more Crying Brian Dern episodes. Every episode <laughs> that Crying Brian's in, I still laugh uproariously. So it's. Yeah, he should, you know, if we had the time and budget, we, what we should have done at the time was create a program for him. Yes. Just aside that whenever we had him in the studio doing the actual scripts, <laughs> Yeah. Take him off to another room and just record. See, nowadays you you just do it and call them podcasts. Yeah. Right. But back in the day, we just didn't really have anything as, except bonus material. But right. a crying Brian Aaron podcast actually would have been quite funny. He, he could have been Frasier like, you know, you had him on Cheers yes. and then, you know, you take the character oh, yeah. and you move him to his own show. I could have been crying yeah. Brian Dern. And can you imagine? And can you imagine him answering calls and trying to give advice? I, I would think listen. that would be a brilliant thing. That would be wonderful. Would be great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Lots of things you're well. Um, well, we're still yeah. We're um, <laughs> well. I'm in post production on a few things, and ranging from working on some videos. Uh, there's one video script that I'm working on for the Augustine Institute um, where I work, which is about the titles of Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the new Adam. Uh, the new Moses, son of Abraham, son of David, you know, those things and to unpack those uh, a bit. So I still do sort of nonfiction type teaching stuff, though it, this is for sixth graders. This is written for a particular age group. Wow. Um, and we have a, a, a audio drama, you know, like the radio theater stuff, but it's about Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. So it's the story of Joan of Arc. Um, so that's coming out in the next month or so. And uh, I'm work, I've been working on uh, novels, a new some new kids' novels, uh, The Adventures of Nick and Sam and The Virtue Chronicles. Uh, so those are different different kinds of things. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, if I look at my list, I just feel like I've got five or six different things that are going on in various stages of effort. Sure. Um, some new scripts for some shows, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Anything in your career... You've done a lot. You've written a lot, but anything in your career you haven't done that you still would like to do? Um. Well, a lot, and that's my problem. I, <laughs> I I've just got, I've got, I've got notebooks filled with ideas that I still think are good ideas that I'd love to play out. But again, I don't have time. Um. Uh more screenplays. You know, I did be on the mask. Yes, we just with, saw that with yeah. the Burns boys. That was good. And, you know, and I did that and, and, and it was a huge learning curve for me in terms of, I'd written some screenplays before, but uh, to work with these guys was great experience, big learning curve for me. 
And then what the thing is, once you have a learning curve like that, I'm thinking, well, I'd like to, to take the learning curve and now work on another screenplay just to see if I learned what I thought I learned on the other one. Sure. You know, to do it better and to do that. I wish they'd actually done more like a sequel to that if they'd been able to. Yeah. Because we really, I mean, we enjoyed, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the situation. Yeah. Um, though I actually begged them. I really wish they had done it as like a binge worthy series, like a mm. Netflix kind of thing. Sure. You know, um, cause if you watch the movie, it, it feels very compressed to me. Yeah. Whereas I'm feeling like, boy, if we could have played those out, all the segments in different episodes, mm-hmm. it, I think it would have been amazing actually. Yeah. We, that was the we just watched it a few nights ago actually and we really enjoyed it oh. it was a it was a it was a good film Yep. oh good thank you Absolutely. yeah no and it's all uh chad and aaron burns those guys you know uh i i got my name on a credit for the writing but honestly it's their vision it was the their ambition to even do something like that i thought was amazing yeah to tell that kind of a story when nobody else was sort of telling those kinds of stories i, I think it was fantastic yeah, it was very good. Well, Paul, we want to yeah. thank you so much for your time and being on the podcast. It's a sincere pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36, For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.